for this afternoon. Our catechism lesson is taken from Lord's Day 3, which teaches us about the origin of sin. And in connection with that, I'd like to read with you two passages of Scripture. First of all, Psalm 8. And then we'll also read from Genesis 3. In Psalm 8, David reflects on God's creation and specifically the exalted place that God has given to man within His creation. Let's read the entire psalm together, Psalm chapter 8. To the choir master, according to the Gittith, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth! You have set Your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, You have established strength because of Your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands, You have put all things under His feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. And let's turn now to Genesis chapter 3. If Psalm 8 teaches us about the position with which God created man in His creation, Genesis 3 teaches about the fall from that position. And let's read the entire chapter together. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed thick leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden." But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, 
Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return." The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man... And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's now read together the church's confession, which summarizes the truth of Scripture. And we'll read the the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 3 which you can find on page 519 of your Book of Praise. Lord's Day 3, and this will be the focus for our message this afternoon. Did God then create man so wicked and perverse? No, on the contrary, God created man good and in His image that is, in true righteousness and holiness, so that he might rightly know God, his Creator, heartily love him, and live with him in eternal blessedness to praise and glorify him. From where, then, did man's depraved nature come? From the fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve, in paradise. For there our nature became so corrupt that we are all conceived and born in sin." But are we so corrupt that we are totally unable to do any good and inclined to all evil? Yes, unless we are regenerated by the Spirit of God. This is the church's confession. Well, dear brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, imagine you're an archaeologist and you discover some ruins. And as you look at these ruins, you think that must have been a house. But now what you see is just a pile of rubble. You see some stones, which might have been a chimney. You see a few rotten beams, which might have been part of the original roof. And as you examine these ruins, you wonder, what did the original house look like? 
Who built the house? And what was it that happened to turn this house into a heap of ruins? You might never know the answer to those questions if you just looked at the ruins. You could only surmise at what might have been. But then imagine again that as you, as you looked through these ruins, as you dug through the rubble, that you discovered a diary. And as you opened this diary, you found that it was written by the architect of the house, that it was complete with descriptions of what this house was, what it was designed to be and do, and how beautiful it was. And it even came with some sketches. And you realize as you look through this diary that this was once a very beautiful house. And as you keep reading through the diary, you read about an earthquake that destroyed the house and leave the ruins that you see in front of you. Well, brothers and sisters, we human beings are a bit like those ruins, that we are just a wreckage of the way we were originally made. We are a shadow of the splendor we once possessed. The fall into sin has had a dramatic impact on our mind, our body, our affections, our will, and our heart. Now, we are still human beings. That has not changed. But the fall into sin has dramatically altered our whole being. And if we only had ourselves as the ruins, we would never be able to know how we were made and how it happened that we fell into sin. We view things after the fall, after the earthquake, if you like. So we ourselves, if we just look at ourselves, we can't know what we were like before that. But thanks be to God that He has given us His Word, His diary, if you like, to tell us about how good He made us. Indeed, God's Word shows that He made us very good, that we were the pinnacle of God's good creation. And in His Word, He also tells us what happened, our rebellion against us, against God, which left us in ruins. So this afternoon, we'll consider what God's Word teaches us about the origin of sin, and we'll do that with this theme, the origin of sin. It highlights God's goodness and His grace, His goodness in creating us to be very good, and His grace in restoring us to that high position by saving us. And so, we'll first see the height of human dignity, how good we were, and then we'll see the depth of human depravity, how bad we became. Well, we're in the section of the Catechism which deals with our sin and misery. And Lord's Day 2, which you would have considered last week, it gives us the mirror of God's law. And that mirror shows us that naturally we hate God and our neighbor. We are in the ruins. And then Lord's Day 3 takes a step back and and asks about how we got there. What is the origin of our sin? Did God make us this way? Um, How did we get like this and how bad really is it? Question and answer 6 shows that God did not make us this way. The ruined house in our introduction, it was never meant to be in ruins and neither were we. Let's have a look together at God's Word, the architect's diary, to survey the splendor with which God crowned humanity. And we'll start by looking through Psalm 8. Now, it's a psalm, we just read it together, which celebrates creation and man's exalted place within it. David, the author, is is reflecting on Genesis 1 and what it meant that God made man in His image. 
David starts the psalm in verse 1 by praising God for the goodness that he sees in all of creation. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You see, David could see God's glory in all the earth. You might think of an artist who would put his signature in the bottom corner of a painting, and yet his signature can be seen throughout the painting in the the style, the types of color that the artist uses, the unique mixtures of color and strokes of a brush. It shows all of the artist's signature. And in the same similar way, God's name, his signature is seen through all of creation. How majestic is your name in all the earth? In verse 3, David looks up specifically at the night sky, at the stars and the moon. Now, these were placed by God as rulers of the night. Perhaps David was thinking back to his days as a shepherd boy, when he would be out there with his sheep. Now, with no light pollution, he would have seen the stars with with all their brightness. Perhaps you've had times when when you've been out in the open night sky... Perhaps down here in Mandajong in the deep south, it's a little further away from the city, so you can probably get a better view of it than closer to the city. And you might have seen what David would have, would have seen when he looked up at the night sky, the, the glorious majesty. And David says that these stars, they're all the work of, of God's fingers. Just like an artist might smear a canvas with his fingertips, so God has shaped the heavens and this statement, it shows to us how big God is. As one commentator said, in contrast to God, the heavens are tiny. They're pushed and prodded by divine digits. But in contrast to the heavens, which seems so vast in the human perception, it is mankind that is tiny. So you see what is happening here. Mankind is tiny compared to the stars, but the stars are tiny compared to God. What then is is man compared to God? That leads to David's central question in this psalm. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you would think of him? David is awestruck because even though man is so much smaller than the heavens, so much smaller than the God who, who made the heavens with his fingertips, yet, yet, God has given man a very high position within this vast creation. God has made man to be a ruler. And that's a theme which comes out in verses 5 and 6. You have crowned him with glory and honor. You've made him to have dominion over the works of your hands and have put all things under his feet. Notice that theme of ruling. God made man with a kingly function to rule over all creatures. You see the contrast here? Even though man is is so small compared to God, yet God made him to be a king, to rule creation. Now, David must have had Genesis 1 in the back of his mind as he penned this psalm, and as he reflected on what it meant to be made in God's image. That's a truth which we also see in Lord's Day 3, that God created man good and in His image. Now, part of that meant that man was created with this ruling function, as Psalm 8 says. And there's also more to it. I'd like to explore this idea with you a little further. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? Well, in Genesis 1.26, God says, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Notice those two words, image 
and likeness. We get a big clue about what this means only a few chapters later in Genesis 5, which gives us a genealogy of Adam. In Genesis 5.3, says that Adam begot a son in his own likeness after his image. There's those same two words which describe God creating humanity, image and likeness. Well, you know, when a, when a baby's born, it's kind of fashionable to see if you can identify characteristics of the parents, and perhaps you even did that this morning with the babies who were baptized. I think she's got the nose of her mum, or I think he smiles a little bit like his dad. And as, as parents, it's a, a beautiful thing when your children grow up and they look like you and they start to act like you. Perhaps it's even annoying at times. But children are formed in the image and likeness of their parents. And that gives us a clue, big clue, what it means to be made in God's image, that He has made us to be like Him as His children. That's also reflected in an, another genealogy in Luke chapter 3, which is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now, Luke traces the line of Christ all the way back to Adam. Now, Jesus was thought to be the son of Joseph, the son of, the son of, the son of Adam, the son of God. The Holy Spirit in Luke 3 is, is teaching us that Adam was God's son, his child. And this is the very heart of what it means to be made in God's image. It's that we have a relationship with him, a relationship where we are like him as his children. And as God's children, we, we reflect his character, just as your children may reflect your character, just as you may reflect the character of your parents. Well, what is God's character? What is God like? God is perfectly righteous and holy, and He made us to reflect this, the most pure essence of His being, His holiness, His otherness, that is, that He is so separate and removed from anything evil, we're made to be just like that. We're made in His image, that is, in true righteousness and holiness. As He is, we were made to be. Now, that relationship, it frames the entire psalm that we read, Psalm 8. It begins and ends with that, that relationship. O Lord, Lord in all capital letters, that is Yahweh, the covenant God who has revealed Himself to be in a relationship with us. Our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. David expresses praise to this God who has revealed Himself in a relationship. And that relationship in the garden, it was, it was very good. The Catechism brings this out too. Man was created that he might rightly know God, his Creator, heartily love Him and live with Him in eternal blessedness. Now, when the Bible talks about knowing God, it's far more than an intellectual knowledge, uh, but it's uh, a relational knowledge the sort of knowledge which is shared by a, a husband and wife. You know, if you were to, to ask a husband about his wife, he's not going to tell you dry facts about her, but he's going to tell you about experiences he's shared with her, about her character. That's the sort of knowledge that God made us to have with Him. It's a, it's a heart knowledge. Jesus said in John 17, 3, in His high priestly prayer, He said, this is eternal life that they know you and Jesus Christ, whom you sent. That's life, to know God. Theology is not a dry subject matter. It certainly shouldn't be, 
but it is relational. We learn about God, we know Him as His children, as those who were made to be like Him. That's something to keep in mind, too, as you, as you read your Bibles and as you study your Bibles throughout the week. We're learning about our God. We're learning about our God who has made us to be like Him. And as a father-son relationship, it, it grows over time. So our relationship with God, it was designed to grow. You know, God is an infinite God, so there is an infinite amount of knowledge that can be learned about Him. After Adam and Eve were created, they could spend every day in the garden growing in their knowledge of God, growing in their love for Him as they walked with Him in that garden. And in that way, as, as a child grows up, and he already is perhaps like his dad, and yet he becomes more and more like his dad as he grows, or she becomes more and more like her mum, so we could also grow in, in our relationship with God, even though it was always perfect. That was how God made us in His image. That was such a, a privileged and exalted position. That's how God made us. It was good. It was very good, the height of dignity. And I'd like to draw out three implications of this truth this afternoon. The first implication is that God is not the author of sin. Now, you remember that we're in the section which deals with our sin and misery and talks about how we've gotten into this sinful state. But if God has made us to be this good, then surely He cannot be charged with evil. He cannot be blamed for the ruins that we've become because that's not how He made us. He made us to be perfectly righteous and holy, to reflect His own perfect being. That's the first implication. Sin is not God's fault. But second, rather, it shows to us God's exceeding goodness. That was the theme for this sermon, the origin of sin. It shows to us God's goodness and grace. Here it shows to us God's goodness. What is man that he, God has made him to be so exalted in the midst of his creation that he crowned us with glory and honor, that he made us to have a relationship with him as his children. How good is our God. And the third implication is that we realize how far we've fallen when we consider just how good God made us. You know, if you only had the ruins of that building and you never knew how nice the house once was, the the ruins wouldn't seem so bad, it wouldn't seem so tragic. But if you have a, a beautiful picture from the architect which displays how magnificent the house was with the majestic pillars, a, a, a beautiful roof, then it makes the ruins seem even more lamentable. You see the tragedy of what that earthquake was. And in the same way, we see the depth of our own sin even more clearly when it's contrasted with our high position at creation. To riff off some language from David after King Saul died on the battlefield, how the mighty have fallen, how we have fallen. The depth of sin becomes even more deplorable when it's seen against the height from which we fell. And that brings us to look at the depth of our depravity, how bad we became. And we do this, beloved, to, to magnify God's grace in rescuing us through our Lord Jesus Christ. You may recall from Lord's Day 1 that we learn about our sin and misery. Why? In order to live and die in the joy of 
the comfort of belonging to Christ. And so, from that perspective, we also look at the depth of our sin. It magnifies the grace of God. Question and answer seven asks where our sinful nature came from if we were not created sinful. And the answer is from the fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve, in paradise. The word fall is intentional. Because by, by disobeying God, our first parents fell from that high position they had as image bearers, as children of God. Rather than reflecting His righteousness, they rejected Him. Instead of imitating God's holiness, they became haters of Him. And Genesis 3 describes that plunge. There's a lot in that chapter worthy of, of noting, but I'd like to bring out just a, a few things this afternoon. And first, the devil said to the woman in verses 4 and 5, he said, you will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You will be like God. Now, there was an element of truth to that, as it became evident after they fell that they did know sin, they knew sin in an experiential way which they'd never known before, but this claim, you will be like God, that was a lie, because they already were like God. As we saw, they'd been made in God's image according to His likeness. They were like God. And that also teaches us something about the nature of sin and temptation, that sin is deceptive. It comes with a promise, a promise of happiness, a promise of enjoyment. If you give in to your desires, you'll be happy. But really, it's a blatant lie because any happiness we experience in sin, it's a false happiness. It doesn't last and it will end in death. Now, when the woman listened to the devil and when Adam listened to his wife, that good image of God, his likeness was shattered. Reflect with me for a moment how, how messy relationships became immediately after the fall into sin. That Adam and Eve, together they had been given that position of dominion of ruling over creatures. As God ruled all creation, they were to rule underneath Him. And that included the serpent. The serpent was one of the creatures that they were to rule as image bearers of God. But by listening to the serpent, they failed in that duty. You could say the first step in the fall into sin was a failure for Adam and Eve to exercise their authority as image bearers of God, ruling underneath Him. So that relationship was already broken, the relationship of man over creation. And further, Adam also didn't exercise his role of headship over his wife. Adam was there the whole time, it seems. In verse 6, Eve's husband was with her but he didn't show any leadership. He allowed his wife to listen to the serpent's voice. And notice that when God came and sought his fallen creatures, he first addressed Adam. Verse 9, the Lord called Adam. And verse 11, have you eaten Adam? That's you in the singular. God addressed Adam without the woman because he had failed in his responsibility as head of his wife. And so you see that there is already division between a man and a woman. The image of God had been shattered. Adam said, it was the woman you gave to be with me. Rather than exercise loving headship over her, he blamed her. And then the woman passed that blame onto the serpent. It was the serpent who deceived me. 
rather than exercising her dominion, she accused the serpent. And so you see that they weren't living as God's children, children, ruling and loving like Him, but as rebels. Relationships were messy. The good image of God was distorted. So now they were not like God. They weren't living in true righteousness and holiness. That's also reflected in the fact that they were ashamed of their Creator, of the one who had made them, so that they hid from Him. Rather than having a hearty love and praise for God, they hid from Him. That relationship with God had been shattered, just like their relationships with each other. They had rebelled against His good word. They hadn't trusted in His word. Well, as a small aside, it's, it's helpful to note that there are still remnants of the image of God left in man, and these remnants are not capable of any saving good, but we still retain a small amount of the splendor with which God created us. We still remain human beings after the fall. And that's seen in Genesis 9, where God commanded Noah not to kill man. They were allowed to eat every moving thing, God said in Genesis 9, but whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. Humans are still made in God's image after the fall. But that image, it is greatly ruined so that we're no longer capable of doing anything good in God's sight. How bad is it? Genesis 6, 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Every intent, only evil continually. That's a complete degeneration. And other Bible places in the Bible affirm that. Genesis, Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And Ephesians 2, 1, you were dead in trespasses and sins and were by nature children of wrath. In other words, deserving God's wrath, His punishment for that sin. That's the depth of our depravity. Is it really that bad? That's question, question 8 of Lord's Day 3, and the answer is simple, yes. We are totally unable to do any good and inclined to all evil. Our depravity is as deep as you could get. We fell from the top right to the bottom. But, beloved, that's a humbling truth, isn't it? Nothing in my hands I bring. And yet it also highlights for us the wonderful grace of God, because it's from this depravity that He has rescued us. How did He do that? Well, Jesus Christ came as the perfect image of God, He was truly able to live in righteousness and holiness. Hebrews 1 says that He is the brightness of God's glory and the express image of His person. Jesus Christ came revealing the Father, so much so that He said, if you've seen Me, you have seen the Father, John 14, 9. And brothers and sisters, He came and lived a perfect life, reflecting the image of God to give this perfect life to us, His righteousness and holiness is given to be ours. 1 Corinthians 1.30, Christ became for us righteousness. He became the perfect image for us when we believe in Him. And Lord's Day 3 finishes with this wonderful note of hope. We're totally depraved, yes, unless we are regenerated by the Spirit of God. 
unless we are regenerated, that is, unless the Spirit of God begins to work new life in us. The Canons of Dort, chapter 3, 4, article 12, speaks about this regeneration, this working of new life in us, and it says that it's equal to raising from the dead. That's because we were spiritually dead by nature. You were children of wrath. But God works in us through His Spirit to make us come to life again. And now we know that the Spirit is also restoring us to that very high position that God made us to reflect. He's restoring us into the image of Christ. Colossians 3.10, you have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of Him who created Him. We are being renewed in the image of God. Romans 8.28, this is what God has predestined us for. God has chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be conformed to the image of His Son. Isn't that the wonderful truth of the gospel? It highlights for us the grace of our God. Well, beloved, this afternoon we've seen the the depth of man's sin contrasted with the height of the dignity with which we were created. And doesn't that just show to us the extent of God's goodness and His grace? Because God is at work. He's at work to repair the ruins, and one day we will, again, be truly righteous and holy. The ruins of that building we discussed in the first part of the sermon will be built again into a magnificent house, never to be destroyed. We'll forever live as God's children, and we will be like Him. Let's join David in Psalm 8 and praise God for restoring us through Christ to be His children. How excellent is your name in all the earth. Amen.